Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of the Middle Grade Ninja Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I've got good news and I've got some bad news. Uh, the good news is I've got two new books available, uh, the first of which is Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. I wrote the first draft of Rob's story when I was 11 years old and in the fifth grade. That version is included with the new edition, complete with full illustrations by 11-year-old me. Um, I have been rethinking and rewriting that story ever since through many, many different variations. At one point, it was a template for the Banneker Bones trilogy. Uh, it has been through a lot of changes, but I'm most excited about this version that's available to you now. Uh, Rob is an adventure-seeking worm. He burrows to the surface with his bunch on a rainy spring morning just to be swooped up by a passing robin. Uh, she carries him way up into the sky, but not to worry, he wriggles free only to land on the roof of a human house. How's he going to get down? And if he does, he's surrounded by nasty yellow jackets, a sizzling hot driveway, colonies of warring ants, a giant spider. There's a whole pond full of worm-hungry koi. When you're a worm, almost everything in your average human backyard is out to eat you. So Rob's got his work cut out for him. Uh, it's an exciting, action-packed story that I also think is a little bit funny. Uh, I hope that you'll check that out. Uh, my other novel is Goodbye to Grandma, and that one is about sixth grader Haley Smith, uh, who comes of age by coming to terms with the death of her grandmother. Uh, it is my most personal story. When I was in the sixth grade, my grandmother died, and I was unable to cry at her funeral. It took me a very long time to process my grief. And since I'm publishing this book now, some would say I'm still processing it. Um, I hope that you'll check out both of those books. I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope that you'll feel compelled to write a review, help me promote them in any way that you can. That would mean the world to me. Uh, so that's the good news. Two new books available for you right now. Um, the less good news uh, is that I, have, my personal circumstances have changed in such a way that I am not going to be able to continue hosting the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, it has been one of the great thrills of my life to have chatted with so many amazing guests. I can't believe the, the people I've had the, the opportunity to sit down and talk with. I have learned so much about writing, publishing, life, and I hope you've learned some things as well. Um, I hope the show has been helpful to you, esteemed audience. I, I couldn't have done it without you, and I so appreciate your support uh, through the years as we've done this. Um, I don't know if or when I'll be able to come back to the show. It's my hope that someday that I will. Um, but in the meantime, I want to offer my most sincere thank you to you and to everyone who has been a part of this show and, and just the incredible experience it's been. We're going to go up to episode 212, and then after that, there will not be any additional episodes for at least a while. But stay subscribed to the feed. Um, hopefully at some point I'll, I'll be able to come back to you, if not to host a regular podcast. I'll at least have some updates for you about some other things I may be working on. Also keep an eye on middlegradeninja.com. Uh, every week I end the show with God willing I'm alive. I'll see you next week. But today I'll just say God willing I'm alive. I hope to see you soon. I couldn't be more excited. My guest tonight on February 21st of 2023, the night uh, right before my PSVR 2 is scheduled to arrive, oh, what an exciting night. I have the incredible good fortune to be talking with Anthony Peckham. Uh, Tony, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be in such esteemed company. <laughs> 
Well, I uh, I appreciate that. Um, esteemed audience is here every week, and they have the pleasure of hearing some of the world's best authors, and tonight will be no different. Um, I couldn't be more in love with Children of the Black Glass. It's dark, it's grim, it's action-packed, and very exciting. Uh, but esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their book or their biography. Why would I do that when you're right here and could do a better job of it than me? Uh, so a good place to start is if you would give esteemed audience an overview of your background, and we'll go from there. Well, um, my background is, mm, there's lots of it because I'm old. Um, I was born and grew up in South Africa um, during the apartheid years. Um, when there was no TV in our country and movies came very infrequently and were a huge occasion. And so all we could do was read and we read, we read all the time. In addition, my dad was a great storyteller and he used to come home after seeing Alfred Hitchcock movies or a movie called Wages of Fear and then retell the whole story to all of us uh, much to you know it was work for him it was pleasure for us but I sort of learned to tell stories from him and um, so I grew up always wanting to write uh, I always knew I wanted to be a writer and then one day in high school I found out that people wrote movies didn't know that I thought movies just grew like mushrooms um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, once I found out that people wrote movies, I, because I, I loved film, um, I just said, I want to do that. And I went, ended up at film school. I went to the University of Cape Town in South Africa and studied English and classical history and um, worked with J.M. Kutsir, who's a, a um, I think he's won the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature. Um, and he was my thesis advisor. So I was very lucky to come up against, yeah. Um, and um, um, made my way to America, like many other people, and um, went to graduate school um, for film, learned how to write movies, learned how to watch movies, learned, looked at films that I'd never been able to see before, which is one of the great pleasures of film school. And, um, and then sold a screenplay while I was still a student to one of my professors who wanted to start a movie company. And he liked what I was writing in his class. Um, and I managed to get an agent out of that. Um, um, and kind of, that was the bottom rung of the bottom ladder of an industry that is full of ladders. And um, I started climbing the ladder. Um, and I've been writing movies for a long time. I'm still doing it right now. Um, and Children of the Black Glass is my first novel, which I thoroughly love writing. So that's the short answer. Move, you know, I have children, I have, I surf, I grow things. I'm not just, I don't just sit in a chair all day, um, but that's me. Very happy and very, <clears throat> very lucky to be here well, as somebody who wants to read more novels as soon as we can get our hands on them i want you to sit in the chair more <laughs> <laughs> i'm doing that i'm doing that i'm doing that right now far too much but i don't know about you but i find that i have to exercise but i have to move my body 
I can't, otherwise I can't sustain writing every day. You know, I have to stay and get, get the blood out of my posterior, as they say, just to move it around. Um, and a lot of the writers I know have to do that as well. So. When I was younger, I had the very foolish uh, notion that my mind was what mattered. That's what created the stories. So I ignored my body much of the time and, and focused on the mind. And of course, once I started exercising regularly and got a routine, I'm like, oh, my, look how much clearer I think. <laughs> look how much easier the writing is now that I've, I've, I've taken care of the physical aspect of things. Exactly. And now they're discovering more and more that, that, that there's a, a, a direct connection between your big muscles and your brain. And so not using them, like you said, is actually doing your mental work a disservice. So anyway, that's my excuse for surfing anyway. That's well, good I frequently me. find that while exercising, um, I'm, obviously I'm listening to podcasts, which I assume uh, are, is what people are doing as they exercise while they're listening to us. Yeah. Um, but I will find that after a good workout in the morning, I will have inspiration somewhere in the middle there. Something about moving around will will um, jostle some ideas loose in my mind. Do you do you find that to be true? Absolutely, and that's why I move around with at least a three by five card and a pencil, you know, wherever I go. But usually it's a pad and a pen because you know those sometimes whole sentences just pop into your head, you know, and you think you'll remember them, but you don't, and then they drive you nuts for six months trying to remember them so I yeah yeah I whenever I'm exercising I also have writing tools what kind of tools do you have on you when you're surfing now that I paid there if you're not paying attention to the ocean you get into trouble so um, that that's my respite but driving to and from surfing I have tools or once I'm on the beach I have tools I, or you know I, I always have tools um even if it's sending myself a text, you know, it's, it, I, I've just learned, try, think, thinking you'll remember those things. If they're huge, big enough, might, maybe, but otherwise, no, I, I write them down because then more come, you know, you're not blocking yourself by trying to remember something. Um, it's down, you've got it. And then the, the, the flow continues. Um, so, you know, I'm sure you, you're the same. I know almost everyone else is the same. People say, when do you write? And the answer is all the time. Doesn't matter where you are. It's 24 seven, you write in your sleep. I dream, you know, when I'm deep in something, I dream solutions or, or changes I want to make. So I have a, you know, a red light, um, little flashlight next to my bed with a pad and a pen. Uh, actually a pencil, because you can write upside down with a pencil. So you don't have to, you don't have to actually get up. You can just pull things and then write, write them down with, with the flashlight in your mouth. And the red light doesn't wake you up too much. So, so we're right. We write all the time. Um, that's why we're heroic. Um, I think. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the writer's life. I'm curious, having uh, not being able to watch film or television uh, from from a young age, and having your father uh, ex explain stories, um, and I'm I'm reminded when I was uh, young, my father was um, hard of hearing, was is hard of hearing, 
um, prior to closed captioning being uh, widely available. And so we would watch a movie and my mom would pause it every 30, 45 seconds and catch him up on the dialogue. And that way it became clear to me, oh, this is, these aren't just images. These mean something. And I began to piece together the story uh, that way. Uh, but I'm curious, what's the first movie you remember seeing? And what's the first film you fell in love with that, that made you think, I want to do that? The first movie I remember seeing is really vivid because it terrified me. And that was The Old Wizard of Oz um, with Judy Garland. The Flying Monkeys, they were terrifying. And uh, so, and we all went, you know, we used to, you used to dress to go to the movies and we all dressed up and went to see Wizard of Oz. Um, and I was hooked from then. Um, uh, the I was already into the industry when those movies of the 80s and 90s came out, Alien, Aliens, Die Hard, um, the, um, um, Road Warrior, uh, all of those films came out then and they just blew my mind. I, I, they still do. I still love them. I still watch them. They, they, to me, they were like the perfect melding of visual and 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 verbal, and storytelling, and and that was an amazing group of directors who are still directing today. Um, so, I, I just love them. I, I would, I you know, I'd 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 watch a snail crawl. You know, if you if you took a movie of it, I'd watch a snail crawling across a pane of glass. If it moves, <laughs> if it moves, I love it. So. Um, and that's still true. And I know you've got uh, you've got an impressive resume with um, uh, with with your um, um, with, with with your film credits. Like you wrote Sherlock Holmes, the Robert Downey Jr. version, yeah. uh, Invictus, Invictus. I never say it right. Invictus. Invictus. Um, yes. Incredible film. Uh, and then you've got one coming up that I'm just fascinated by. the The president is missing. Well, no, that's no longer coming up. Um, um, that, that got basically COVID killed that, um, we were making the pilot on March 13th, uh, of 20, was it 2020? Um, when the entire world shut down, we stopped, we stopped the, stopped production, got on airplanes and all went home, taking the virus with us, I'm sure. Um, and um, so that that never recovered from COVID. Um, actors moved on, um, and uh, and so it was a wonderful experience. Um, but and one of the tragedies, you know, of of my career is that we never got to put that out, and because we we had a killer a killer first season uh, lined up, and uh, it never happened. That happens more often than you'd think in the movie industry for one reason or another. Steeply disappointed. I was looking at the IMBD page and the cast that you had lined up. I thought that's going to be incredible. Christopher McQuarrie's involved. He doesn't yeah. make bad things. Did you get, uh, I guess I know that's adapted from the James Patterson, Bill Clinton novel. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I wanted to ask, did you have any chance while you were working on the, the, the screenplay, did you have any chance to interact with them? Oh, yes, a, a lot. Um they they they're producers on the show. They were producers on the show. 
So I, I went to President Clinton's offices in Harlem and um, had to go and pitch what we were doing to him. And I had many questions for him. I got a lot of help from his staff. Um, um, Jim Patterson was incredibly generous and helpful because um, if there's anyone who knows how to write a hook, he does. And, you know, to get you to, to turn the next page. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. We shot it in Baltimore, which is one of my, now one of my favorite East Coast cities. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, um, I've got made lasting friends from that production. Actually, I'm just finishing up a script now for David Oyelowo, who was our lead. Um, and that will hopefully go into production. You know, the movie business, just because you write it doesn't mean it's going to be a movie. In fact, I would say that very few of my, my screenplays have been made. And, and then on the other hand, I haven't, I, you know, there's a credit arbitration process for whether your name gets on the film or not. And so um, there are other films that I've worked on quite extensively that I didn't get credit on. That's common. That's normal. That's normal in the business. It hurts, but it's normal. You still get paid though, right? Yes, but not as much. You don't get royalties. You get only get royalties if your name's on it. Yeah, interesting. I, I just have known some screenwriters who've uh, made a handsome living writing all their lives and haven't had any films actually made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's more common than you'd think. So, um, and it's... It's frustrating because you, I don't know about you, but I have to fall in love with whatever I'm working on to, to want to work on it. And so you fall in love with all, these are all your children, you know? Um, you know, even the children that have been really interfered with by many other people, they're still your children. And so when someone tells you that your children are not gonna see the light of day, it always hurts. Um, so you develop, pretty thick scar tissue in the movie. As a writer in the movie business, you better develop pr pretty thick scar tissue, otherwise you're not, you're not gonna survive. Um, it's, it's, the re rejection is constant and the, the uh, rejection and correction is constant. Um, something I haven't, you know, but something that writing this novel has changed in a beautiful way. You know, it's, I love working with an editor. I'm used to working with notes, that I, um, but to actually get really incredibly good notes, that's wonderful. That make, that make my book much better, wonderful. Love it. I want to talk a whole lot about the process of adapting a novel, but before we, we move away, because I, I am devastated that this, this series is not going to come to be, but when you're, it's one thing when you're working with the studio fellows or, or people who, who want to give you notes. If Christopher Macquarie has a note, well, he probably knows he wrote The Usual Suspects. He's, he's pretty yeah. smart. Yeah. Um, but when it's Bill Clinton <laughs> and you say, well, Mr. Clinton, I, th I think we should, Mr. President, I think we should make this change. And he says, no, is that more or less the end of the discussion? <laughs> no, but only because of him. You know, he was incredibly generous. And incredibly respectful, actually. And um, once 
he and Jim Patterson realized that we were, that first of all, we're doing an adaptation. So some things had to change, which we'll get to, um, but that we were, we were honoring the book and um, honoring its source. Then they, they felt comfortable enough to let us exercise our judgment. Um, and I think they really liked what we came up with. Um, so, so no, I, we, it's always a negotiation, even if it's not called that, but it's, it's, if you have basic human skills, which President Clinton does more than any other person I've ever met, um, then you can talk about these things honestly and openly and come, come, come to a decision on them. He, he, he was not autocratic in any way. A temptation of mine, if I'm sitting across from a former president, is we talk about the book, we talk about all kinds of things, but sooner or later, when, when I feel the, the, the conversation is comfortable enough, I'm going to say, Mr. President, what do we know about the aliens? What, what were you informed of? Did you ever have that discussion? <laughs> no, I, I wanted to, um, because that, that, that's also a, a, uh, an interest of mine. And so I, I did want to ask about Area 51 and so on. But no, I, um, I was being paid to keep my eye on one ball. You know, <laughs> so, um, and he, you know, he told, amazing, told us amazing stories because we needed to know how certain things worked. You know, the, the whole allure of, this, of, the, of the series was that it was going to be inside, inside. And we had the ultimate insider to the White House um, helping. So that's what I was digging for is, you know, what are you wearing when you get the call on the red phone, you know? Um, where were you? What's it like? You know, two in the morning, do you, all of those things, you know, and he was super generous with his, with his experience. Um, he never, he very seldom said, I can't talk about that. Well, even without a, a TV series, that's a once in a lifetime experience. This kid, you're going to carry forever, right? It was amazing. It was amazing. He showed me a letter, um, that was a gift to him, a letter from Albert Einstein about the potential practical applications of splitting the atom. Wow. Yes. I bet even if you had a year or two years just to ask him every question that ever came to mind, there's no way you'd ever cover everything. I, I, I bet he's he's forgotten so many interesting things that have happened to him over along the way. He hasn't forgotten anything. He's, <laughs> he's amazing. He's amazing. Um, he, he's, he's, he's amazing. So uh, it was fun. Don't you? So I'm... Uh... Uh, fascinated you're exploring a remote high altitude landscape with your children and you come across a mountain made of black glass and suddenly it, it clicks immediately that this is this the foundation of a story what, what 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 happens when you encounter that mountain well this was on a road trip on the eastern sierras of california right and um road trip with the family and the, and the kids and um 
I was, I emulated my father and still do and tell stories to my kids. And we, we were all into um, archaeology and, and ancient objects and always tried to visit ancient sites wherever we went. And we knew that because we'd read about it, we knew that an obsidian arrowhead from this place in the Eastern Sierra had been found 250 miles away in a sand dune on the coast near where we lived in California. And the kids went, how did that get there? And that, and so I made up a story night after night as we were tra traveling, it was embellished and you know, kids are ruthless. If, if you're boring them, they let you know um, immediately. And so we just sort of started making up the story of how this arrowhead got from in the middle of nowhere at 10,000 feet to, uh, to the coast. And um, at a certain point, the story kept, and it was a bedtime story, right? And so at a certain point, the story started keeping the kids awake rather than putting them to sleep. And my wife gently suggested that I stop telling the story and just write it down. And so I did at the time and put it in a drawer and forgot about it. Or oh, didn't forget about it. It kept gestating. And uh, sometimes it gestated consciously and other times unconsciously. And I, um, the, the giant trading city that my two protagonists end up in um, is modeled on medieval Timbuktu um, because I went to an exhibit talking about this incredible city in the, at the base of the Sahara Desert. And so the beautiful thing about fantasy is I get to go from the high Sierras to Timbuktu um, in one journey. And um, so stuff dropped into place. And then eventually during COVID, I was going nuts with nothing to do. My, my the president is missing was frozen. I didn't want to write screenplays because we didn't know we, we didn't know when movies were going to be made. And so I, I pulled this out and I had about five chapters uh, and I read them thinking they were going to be awful, um, which is often an experience I have anyway with old writing. I go, Ugh, it's, and, um, but, but I read it and went, huh, this is not terrible. Um, and so started again it was terrible but it was terrible with potential and um i started writing it again um no it wasn't hopelessly terrible and so started writing it again and and wrote the entire novel sort of during the depths of covid shutdown probably and and so i was only entertaining myself which is a wonderful lesson i i i i I didn't think of selling it. I didn't know that it was young adult. Um, I love stories, you know, you know, Hatchet, Ender's Game, are, are two books that I read again and again. And I don't consider those children's stories at all. They're stories about children, but, but the, 
the themes and uh, the darkness of them is tremendous. And so I just kept trying to entertain myself with this story without thinking of a market, without thinking of anybody, but ending each day having had fun at my desk. And uh, I, I wish I'd learned that lesson long ago, you know, to just have fun, to be, to have the confidence to have fun with what you're doing. And uh, in, in, instead of seeing some invisible reader somewhere or invisible critic or invisible producer somewhere looking over your stuff. Um, and so, as I said to you before, it's the, it's the most fun I've ever had writing in 30 years of professional writing. I'm gonna steal that phrase at every chance I get. This isn't bad, it's terrible with potential. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think yeah. I'm gonna you wrote this down because now instead of keeping your children awake, uh, children of the black class can keep uh, children around the world uh, awake. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Um, I've had a couple of people read it to their children and then, and it's not just children, so they've been reading it to their children and then confessing to me that they've, after their child fell asleep, they just stayed there reading it um, until the end, which is the biggest compliment you could pay a writer. So um, um, hopefully I keep children awake all over the world and children and not such children awake. I'd love to. So when this idea comes to you, does it come as you're, you're telling it to your children, at what point do you think this should be a novel and not a screenplay or was it always going to be a novel? Always going to be a novel. And I wrote it down as a novel. I hope it becomes a screenplay or a, or a series because I'm writing three books in the series. Um, and um, I suppose at least, hopefully. Um, but I'm writing three books in the series and I would, it would, it would tickle me tremendously to sort of come full circle as a writer and adapt my own novel in, in some way. Um, that would be fun. Two very different things, very, very different hats. Um, so I'd, I'd have to take off the novelist hat and put on the screenwriter hat and look at my own work as if it was a stranger's work. And as if I owed nothing to that stranger, definitely owed something to the material, but I had to do to it what was necessary to make it into a film or a TV series. So I hope I get that opportunity. Well, you certainly know a lot of the right people. <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, you know, I um, I was very fortunate. I mean, writing's a mixture of luck and hard work, right? Getting published, I mean. And the luck I had was that I already had agents and a manager. There were movie agents and managers, but they all know book agents. So I showed this to them and they loved it. And they gave it to book, some book agents and, and they loved it, luckily. It was great affirmation. 
for my, for a first novel, and um, and so that was my fortune is that I'd spent thirty years building up a network of people who who were connected into the book world. Um, so I, I I jumped over a lot of the stuff you have to do to get to that place. Um, oh, you didn't jump over it. I didn't jump 30 over. years building a shortcut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a long shortcut. Um, and it only started because 30 years ago, when I, when this professor of mine wanted to buy a screenplay, I, and it was, you know, he gave me a price. I said, yes, but I said, let's not do the deal. And I phoned around and said, there's this guy who wants to buy my screenplay. I don't know what to do about the deal. Do you want to help? And so that was a free 10% for an agent. So it was easy. It was easy to get an agent because I, because I basically had done all the work for them. And all they had to do was pull out boilerplate, put in a few names, and they'd made themselves 10% of a very small deal. But it would seem like a fortune to me at the time. I was, I was a graduate student. Um, so, um, yeah, 30 years of building that. Um, and, and having people I really enjoy and respect as part of my movie, you know, you have to have, I don't live anywhere near Hollywood anymore. So I have to have people who do and who help me help, you know, help me help protect me, um, help open doors for me. And then I have to do my part after that. But um, so that's a, that's a wonderful thing to have. I'm very lucky in that respect. Well, I've got lots of questions about the book. Before we get too far into it, it occurs to me that esteemed audience has probably not just read it, although they're probably pulling it up on the device that they're listening to us on and ordering their copy. Uh, could you give us kind of an overview of the novel and what they need to know to make this informed purchase? Yes, without wanting to give away any of the twists. Um, so, um, um, it's a book set somewhere between the end of the Stone Age and the beginning of the Age of Metal. And it begins high up in the mountains in a village that is the only source of obsidian, black glass, in their entire land. And it starts the night before um, the men of the village are about to take their mules down to a giant trading city called Halfway it's halfway between everything in their land um, to trade their season's worth of black glass for the supplies to get them through this through winter which is really harsh up there and um, we focus on the father of a 14 year old boy and a 12 year old girl named Telen Wren who blinds himself carving the last and most precious piece of black glass. And so breaking all the rules of their very rule bound village, the two children decide to take their father's load uh, of black glass down to halfway by themselves in order to get supplies for the season and get medicine for his eye. And um, that's in, and, and against all the rules of their village. Um, they risk expulsion, may not be allowed back. Um, but down they go with their trusty mule, Rumble, um, 
The journey down is incredibly dangerous. Many things happen, good and bad. And then they reach a city for which they are not equipped at all. Um, massive city, people from all over their land. Um, they only know the route to the, the, to the man who trades, the merchant who buys their black glass every season. And um, as they walk through the gates of this gigantic city, having had to shed their weapons, because there are no weapons allowed in the city, they walk into a coup, not knowing what a coup is. They walk into a plot to take over the city. Um, and basically, that's where I'm going to stop because um, from then on, their world turns upside down. And they're incredibly tough because of where they live, incredibly resilient, very brave, very skilled. Um, teenagers who, um, who are up to the task of surviving this city and this coup. Um, and um, that's where I'll stop. There's, there's much else to know and to, to read, but I don't want to give anything else away because then you won't turn the pages if you already know. Well, I'll be careful with my questions because I have a very bad habit of getting excited and talking about things we shouldn't uh, yet for, for, for readers who haven't enjoyed. Um, but something that happens extremely early that just fascinated me um, is the, the father character is, is a very traumatic scene that, that opens this novel. He's already he's only got one eye and then he uh, blinds himself. And we know that he's got, what, 30 days before they're going to put him on an iceberg with some wine. Or some on a glacier. They put him on a glacier with a glacier. Yeah. They, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I expect it wouldn't make wouldn't make sense that I <laughs> no, no, I mean, you know, their existence is so precarious that if you get injured and don't heal within 30 days, you're taken out to the glacier above the village with a gourd of apricot brandy. And you, you sit with your friends and drink the brandy and fall asleep on the glacier and never wake up and are slowly carried away. Um, and, and so that is the sort of ticking clock of the whole story is that Tell and Ren have to get back with medicine for their father before the 30 days is up. Um, and so it's, it's a harsh existence. This is, a, a, I think a fairly dark book, a lot of bad things happen, but it's also about the resilience of these children and other, and other people they meet of their own age um, who are dragged into their adventure and who become great friends and allies and teachers because Tell and Ren know nothing whatsoever about a city at all um, and wouldn't survive a night without their new friends. So, um, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it, I'm, I'm hoping people are inspired by the courage and resilience of these kids. Um, I certainly am. So, you know, I have a 12 year old son, so I'm, I want him to be resilient. I think our future is going to demand it. So, um, 
So I'm hoping this models some of that for him. Not that he's read it. But <laughs> he's about the only kid on the block who hasn't read it. <laughs> well, uh, it's going to, all of his friends are going to read it and talk to him about it. And eventually he's going to say, oh, what the heck, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll read this thing. Um, and if you ask him about it, say it's fine, but probably you'll hear him talking to someone else and he will be as excited as they are. <laughs> well, he, he says he only reads on his Kindle. So we're waiting for him to get it on his Kindle, even though I'm, I've just handed him a you know first edition hardcover and he's like, eh, I, I have to, I can't read it in bed at night that way. So, which is where he does all his reading. So I, I don't care. He can he can read it any way he wants to, or not. So, something I, I, it's not a trick. It's a it's a it's a craft technique you pulled off that I want to tease out. Is because you took me through a range of emotions very early. Because the the father, I immediately pity him. Oh my God, you've you've lost your your second eye. How are you going to survive in this world? And then you immediately take that pity that I have for him back because of the way he's treated their, the children's mother, because of some of the things he says to them, because of some of his outlook that's reflective of the values of the village. Like, oh no, I hate this man. But then immediately he steps up for uh, for tell uh, when he's dealing with, um, with, with, with a not so nice customer and, and helping him out. And you immediately win me back. And now I'm hoping that they're able to save him. It's, it's, it's just such a back and forth whiplash of how I feel about this character. How did you do it? And, and why? Well, I mean, what happens, this is already a heightened circumstance, right? Up in this village, it's an extreme life. It's an extreme place extreme people and extreme life. And then what happens to this particular family is very dramatic um, and traumatic. And so I try to follow the, you know, in the beginning, especially tells emotions um, through, through the trauma, they lose their mother. Um, two years previously, she goes down the mountain with the trading party and never comes back and no one will talk about her. And people pretend she never existed. And as a result of her not coming back, the women of the village are no longer able to go down, which they, which they resent and hate. You know, I do explore some of the issues of patriarchy here without ever using words like that. Um, but, um, but so, I, you know, I take you into, into a family that's had a lot of stuff happen to them in a short period of time. And it keeps getting worse. Um, and so it, that's where those emotions come from and that whipsaw comes from. And then Tell's idea, which is revolutionary in their context, to do it himself without permission is sort of very liberating, I thought. And the, the fact that he, his father not only blesses him, but gives him the confidence to do it is, I thought, wonderful. That this, this man Tell has hated for two years because he thinks he's somehow responsible for their mother's disappearance. Um, that, that, that shell cracks in time for us to feel they're leaving behind someone they love and want to save. 
and the only parent who's still available to them. So, um, so I don't know. I, I, I think it's dramatic and, and kind of emotional. Well, and of course, compounded by just the, the not knowing as soon as they're asking what, what happened to mom. No, we're never talking about her again. And then that's it. Right, right. She's, she's, an, she's, she's an unperson in their village, um, which is awful. So um, I don't want to say anything more about that, though. Oh, of course, um, you're teasing a, a mystery that, that we're going to yeah, learn more yeah. about later. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's for the reader to discover. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm glad. I'm glad you saw the emotion or felt the emotion, and the range of emotions of intense, intense emotion. Um, well, it was just a, a it was such a very short. It was like within two, two, three chapters, you did this that I'm back and forth on this character. Like I don't know how to feel. <laughs> well, there's there's more to him in book two. He's very, he's a crucial character. Even though, I, you know, the, the entire story is told from the point of view of the children. Um, of course, he's crucial to them. And, and anyway, I don't want to say anymore because it gives away other things um, that are best discovered in the course of the story. Well, without getting into specifics, there are um, some, some very surprising twists and turns. And you've got two more books, so I'm assuming you've got more twists and turns saved up. How, how much are you plotting ahead to provide those? And how much of those are you uh, pantsing until you get there and then working backward to make everything make sense afterward? I, um, it's a good question because, and very much a difference between screenwriting and the novel, um, is... I kind of know where I want the story to end up, but I don't really know how I'm going to get there. Um, after, and I, I know how my story begins. Um, so every day I sit, sit down and try and surprise myself. And for me anyway, it's the stuff I never, th I, it's the stuff I didn't anticipate that ends up being the best stuff every day. So it's sort of being open to being surprised as you're working while staying within the logic of the world you've created, right? So it's, um, I can't do it all the time and every day, but that's what I seek is to surprise myself. And that's why, you know, I sort of paint myself into a corner. How are they gonna get out of this? How are they gonna solve that problem? And try and make sure that the solutions come from them, not from the novelist, if you know what I mean, that they're not, I, I don't, you know, suddenly they can't fly, you know, to get out of trouble. It still has to stay within the logic of what I've established. And so more than once I've had to abandon and, you know, abandon a, a pathway because I couldn't figure out how to get back. It, it turned out to be a dead end for me creatively. And so I'd have to work back. And then as long as you accept that as part of the process, that some days you're going to throw stuff away that you've spent all day or all week or all month doing, um, then, then I don't, it doesn't feel too tragic to me to do that. It feels like just part of the process of writing the novel 
in a way that's going to be full of twists and turns and surprises and solutions that people will hopefully find entertaining because I did. Um, so so um, that's the process. I assume the flip side of that is if you're throwing so much at them that you don't know if they can get out of it or how they're going to get out of it ahead of time, then the reader can't rightly uh, find this predictable because you don't know, right? Right, right. And so when, when it works, it's wonderful, you know, and, and it, but it doesn't always work. Um, and then, you, like I said, you just have to accept that it's not always going to work. But I find that enjoyable, you know, to get to, to get to the end of a day and go, oh, I didn't know they were going to be there by the end of the day is, uh, is pretty cool. It keeps me entertained writing it rather than, you know, often with screenplays, you map every single beat out. I mean, you, you'll stand in front of a giant whiteboard in a producer's office and literally write down every single scene and what goes down in every single scene. And they have to do TV series that way. They have to, they have to have them mapped out. You can't do what, what I've just described in a TV series or even in a movie. And so, but that, that's kind of confining. You know, once everyone's gone, oh, that's wonderful, let's do that. That's what you have to do. That's what you're signed on for. And um, that's a discipline in itself. And I, I've really enjoyed not not doing that discipline um, with with the book, and and will continue to not do that discipline. Um, I'm in a terrible bind now with book two. I don't know what I've I've got my people in a place where I don't know what I'm going to do. So hopefully I can figure it out. Well, when you're um. Uh, when you're when you're writing during uh, COVID and now hopefully knock on every piece of the of wood there is somewhere if not past uh, somewhere in the middle of this pandemic that's that's forever going to be probably ongoing. Yeah. That that's a different conversation. But when you're when you're sitting down and you're writing, how are you hitting? Are you looking for a certain word count? What's your workday look like, and how do you know if you've had a good day? Um. I have, I don't have a word count or a page count so much as I have a, a place in the story I want to get to. And um, I'm usually two to five pages a day, however many words that is. Um, I've learned that in order to sustain um, constant writing, it, if you if you go too hard one day, there's nothing left the next day. At least that's for me, is that I can write myself out and I don't like doing that. Um, I'd rather just sort of do what I can do within basically five or six hours is all I've got for actually sitting in front of the computer. After that, I just wear out. You know, and then, then it becomes a law of diminishing returns and I usually throw away whatever's written then. Um, there was an old earnest, a, a trick I learned. I used to read the letters of writers that I admired, particularly Ernest Hemingway and Raymond Chandler, because they, they were tremendous correspondents and they talked a lot about how to write or how they wrote. And um, Hemingway had this fantastic piece of advice, which 
I give anyone, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm known as a bore about this because it's, I find it so um, useful. It's such a great writer's tool. He always said, stop before you're finished every day. So leave a paragraph, you know what to do, unwritten, because the next morning you don't have, that's your warm up. You know exactly what you're going to write and you can start writing it. And by the time you finish that paragraph, you're off for the next day. You're off and running for the next day. So, um, and so I always try and do that. I always try and stop while there's something left for me to write. And then I'll pick it up the next day. So that's, um, that I, that's a fantastic tool. And anyone who ever tries it comes back to me and offers to buy me a drink. Um, so, so anyway, it would approve. <laughs> yeah, he would. No, naturally. And and the other the, the other great piece of advice is from Raymond Chandler, and I use this: is that you have to go to your office, you have to sit down, you don't have to write, but you can't do anything else. You can't you can't pay bills, you can't surf the internet. Uh, the computer I write on is not connected to the internet. I have a, my laptop for that. So when I write, I can't go look at sports scores or anything like that. Um, and then you, so you don't have to write, but eventually you get bored enough that you start writing just to entertain yourself. And I've found that re a, a really great discipline is you just have to, you have to sit there. Just have to, you can't, you, you, it, if you're trying to produce pages every day, there's, you don't have the luxury of waiting for the muse to strike you. You know, you just have to sit there and, and work or do nothing else. And that's pretty wonderful, a, a, a wonderful advice as well. That lets you set up a rhythm and you only have to do that once or twice in a project. And then you have the rhythm and then you get Hemingway's um, dictum, you know, of, finishing before of stopping before you've finished and usually pretty soon you've got a pile of pages there um so that's the you know we all have tricks right you have to trick yourself to do this so we all have tricks for that um i assume everyone knows when their brains work best or should know eventually that when when what your what your perfect writing time is and then you protect that time jealously. No, well, I do. I mean, uh, I'm, I basically write from seven until one every day, 7 a.m. till one o'clock. That's my writing time. Nothing else can happen there. You better be bleeding if you want to come through the door. Um, um, so that, and then after that, I'm useless. So I can go and do all the other stuff. And then if I'm really working hard, then I edit but usually I prefer to edit the next morning. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you protect your, when your brain works best. I think you should. Um, are you uh, listening to music or are you allowed anything that might help inspire you, but also possibly distract you? Uh, no, because I like to, I love music, but I, I start singing and stuff, you know, along with it. And so, um, no, I, I'm trying to hear the voices I'm writing, you know, especially 
movies, you're writing dialogue and I need to hear those voices. And that, that's transferred over to the novel too. I need to hear my characters talk. Um, so I, I listen to that, listen for that. Um, and so it doesn't have to be dead silence, but I can't, I don't have music on in my office while I'm writing. Um, I know a lot of people do. Um, and then I've learned that when you need to read a chunk to see if it's any good or not, I go somewhere else. I go out of the environment I wrote it in, get in a car, drive to a coffee shop 20 miles away, and it looks different there. When you sit down to read it, it looks different. You can read it more, I can read it more objectively. And, and that's a great little trick too. Um, are you printing it up or reading it on a different advice? Are you taking device? Are you taking the same computer? Paper. Um, uh, old school. I love paper because because it's. I make notes much more quickly with a pen. Notes and corrections much more quickly with a pen. And ultimately, I'm going to want to you know re read it on paper. So I want to see how it looks. I, I think things look differently on paper than they do on a screen. Um, I don't have a Kindle because I look at a screen all day. I don't want to read a book on a screen at night. So I only, I only read books, uh, you know, book books, the object. Um, um, even though trees are sacrificed for it. For it. Um, for a worthy cause. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, I love, I love the object. I love what books are as an object. Um, that this small thing can contain huge worlds, you know, and characters that shock you and things happen, you know, all within this little block of stuff. And so I love that. Of course, if you're handwriting your notes, at some point you've got to go back and you've got to input those changes into the computer as opposed to doing it as you're thinking of the notes, which means they've got to be considered at least twice. So it's almost like another draft, right? No, it is. And I, and I like that part of it. And often, you know, I've learned that to do sort of shorthand notes, sometimes I'll just, you know, circle a paragraph and do CDB, could do better. You know, and then I'll go back and <laughs> attempt to do better. You know, if something's been lazy, um, inadvertently, you know, or, or the first choice, the, the creative first choice all the way down the line when sometimes you shouldn't be doing that. So I've got shorthand for, you know, I don't change every single word with a pen in the coffee shop. Do you not resent yourself a little bit when you live? What am I supposed to do with this? Could do better. You should have done better. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I don't mind it when, when I do it. I learned that the hard way and the, from the other direction in, in Hollywood, right? <laughs> and I hated the people who did that to me. I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Could do better. You try and do better. <laughs> I've done that to myself before. I'll write a note, a really helpful note, like make this brilliant. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's future <laughs> me's problem. Let's make it brilliant, future me. <laughs> exactly. Kick the can down the road. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, you know, we just, I, 
know, screenwriters don't mix much with other screenwriters. We're all lonely people in, in little rooms for the most part, until you're not, until you've got too many people telling you what to do and leaning all over your stuff. But um, most of the people I know who are writers and who I talk to, everyone has, has tricks that work on themselves. So little, little things they do to make their work life more efficient. Um, the, the, the one is that is most horrible is the people who can't write until they're so close to deadline that they have to, it, it's, it's a crisis. You know, they can't write until there's a crisis. And I, I, I don't know, I, I think you, you lose years off your lifespan doing it that way. <laughs> Certainly sounds less pleasant. Yeah, it is. I think so. But people do work that way. Now, of course, when you're writing a screenplay, we were talking before we got started that you can't write down the, the, the character's internal monologue, what they're thinking. You don't spend a lot of time on scenery or any of that. You're just going to say interior, exterior. Uh, and then get to the dialogue. So what was the hardest part of transitioning for you to novel writing? And what was also the maybe the most freeing part? Well, well, I didn't think it was the hard part until my editor pointed it out. But a lot of my first draft was written in a fairly distant third person voice, the way I've been trained to do as a screenwriter, where I, where I can only talk, where I can only show what people do and what they say in the setting they're in and very briefly. And so it's, it's emotionally distancing. When people first read a screenplay, it's difficult to, they're difficult to read because you don't yet have the muscle to be watching the movie you're reading and, and anticipating what actors do because the actors bring the emotion. Um, so um, I had to be taught by my editor basically um, to, to, to get much closer to my characters and break all these rules that had been sacred to me for 30 years. And once I started doing it and got it, oh my goodness, it was so liberating. I loved it. I loved being able to talk about what was in their heads and in their hearts and in their bellies as things happened to them. You know, I'm, um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. I don't think I went far enough. Maybe I did, I don't know. Um, if you felt the emotions you were feeling at the beginning of the book, then I succeeded at some point, to some extent. But um, well, oh, I felt uh, emotions uh, throughout. We're just not talking about the later book. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can if you want. But um, it's just that the few pe the people who've read the book so far, you know, they phone me and go, "You did not, you know, I did not see that," and so I, I'm. I always loved that in a book, not knowing what was coming and being surprised. So um, anyway, but uh, I, I just, I'm just loving, I like, I love my characters. I have a character in this book who is my favorite and I never thought she would be. She just kind of grew and um, I love her and um, bad things happened to her too. And um, she, 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 survives them not not undamaged and um she's a I, she's a character i absolutely love who i never expected to so um that's a pleasure you know it's just going oh wait this is such a rich character i've got so much to do with her 
you know we've she's she's now definitely one of my one of my main characters even though you know we always go back to tell and ren um and their relationship to each other and to the world um i, I love rumi as well i um and uh so that's been part of the fun it's just having characters grow and start to disobey you and start to not do what you thought they were going to do that day because when you get to write it it's just wrong you know it's just no she can't do that she would never do that well, that's me trying to make a character do something she would never do that then i know we've got a live character there so that's pretty cool i'm of the opinion i'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well that when you torture your characters you bad things happen to them and you 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 you, you engineer uh, terrible things to happen for them i think that is a form of love because you're making their story more compelling like yes it's unfortunate for you at this moment but trust me in the long run you're going to be a far more interesting character because these terrible things are happening to you absolutely um and and i've always loved those stories you know of of peril and you know peril and suffering and and make that characters making their way through that and growing growing their way through that and so you're absolutely right it is a form of love if i didn't love them i wouldn't bother you wouldn't bother with all of that trouble and life's that way you know life's full of trouble and you have to deal with it Yeah, I keep looking for the easy mode where you don't have to deal with the issues ever again. Doesn't seem to be an option. <laughs> I'm older than you, and I I still haven't found it either. So I I or at least when things happen easily, it's unusual enough that you you note it, right? I think some people do go through life and everything happens easily. I'm thinking of one person who thinks that life's really easy, and it really has been really easy for them, but they, that's only one person out of all the people I know. Everyone else is, has a hard time at, at points. Is it Matt Damon? No, I'm teasing. No, no. <laughs> I don't know if life is easy or not. He's a good, good guy, though, so... Um, I'm curious, when you're, when you're dealing with, uh, with um, you know, uh, celebrities that we've all um, fallen in love with through different films. Um, how do you stop yourself from, hey, Matt, how do you like them apples? You know, things that uh, would not be appropriate to say. How do you maintain acknowledging that they are who they are? You're talking to Morgan Freeman. We all know that that's read from Shawshank, but yeah. you want to you want to distance yourself. How do you deal with them respectfully so you can work with them and take them off the pedestal that they are on through marketing? Um you have to it's it's not professional not to and um i you know film is a collaborative medium and um they need me and i need them and it's my greatest pleasure to write for a specific actor i love it i love working with an actor and so you very quickly lose any kind of starstruckness once you start working together doing doing proper work moving words around moving scenes around and stuff like that then you're just trying to make a make a better movie 
and and if if hopefully you see eye to eye on how to do that or at least you can talk through how to do that and so yeah it's not you know i've never asked for an autograph or a picture never would um it's 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 not it's not professional and they would not i you know they'd lose respect for me instantly so it, it's sort of easy you just do your work do your work they do their work you try and do the best you can um, when you're writing uh, for a specific actor and you know their work and you know what some of their strong points have been previous um i imagine the temptation that would be i know you wrote a, a screenplay for toby mcguire uh, it would be my temptation to <laughs> to work in Spider-Man references, but to think of, of of the characters I've seen him play. But if you're creating a whole new character and they're an actor with, in, with uh, incredible range like Tobey Maguire has, how do you put that in a, a separate part of your brain and create something entirely new that there's, you know, they're, they're still going to play to their strengths, but it's not going to be um, a paint by numbers um, character for them. Well, I Actually, the last thing they ever want is to do what they've done before. So um, if, I mean, some people do because it's easy and comfortable for them and they repeat themselves and that's fine. If people like that, that's fine. But someone like Toby would never want to be what he'd been before. And so I just focus on the character I'm writing and, and Toby will decide how to play that. You know, that's that's what actors do and um, good actors. And so really I'm trying to write a character that intrigues Toby because it's different from anything else he's done. Um, so I don't, I don't go, I never ever go back and look at, a, at an actor's previous work to try and inform my work. Um, quite the opposite, I, I, forget, I try and forget everything they've ever done because they are who they are. I mean, they aren't acting. Good acting is very difficult because um, people have to put on a different character every time they do that. It's, I think, I think it's kind of quite hard psychologically if they really get deep into who they're trying to be. And so um, my job as the writer is to provide them the material to do that with rather than try and try and as i said try and repeat what they've already done um and then it's it's a collaboration as you work together um they'll say i can't say it this way there's nothing more detailed than than nobody is more detailed than an actor working through his or her lines with you um just before production they really push and pull on everything. And you know, I'm the writer. I think I know what I've got on the page. And once the actors start pushing and pulling on it, the good, smart actors, you realize, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Or, or that line can't work. Um, and sometimes the way they deliver a line completely changes the meaning of the line. And, um, and just the emphasis, different emphasis on the words. Um, and so, and so then you change the script to, to reflect them as an actor. It's, a, it's really exciting, it's hard work. It's not me having ideas anymore. It's, 
it's me working with the actor to put what they want to do on the page while still keeping the scenes and the stories in place. It's, it's very cool, it's fun. It, it's uh, exhausting, it's sort of guerrilla warfare, you know, it's like guerrilla writing because it's all happening in real time. There's a start date, you're out of time. Um, my brain turns to mush after five or six hours. Sometimes people can go for 12 hours and I just can't. You know, that sometimes the actors can go all day, eight to eight, and I just can't. You know, at a certain point, I just have to say uncle and go take a walk or something and try and, or a nap and try and, you know, rehabilitate my brain. Um, but uh, yeah, it's fun. That part's really fun. Do you miss that tool? And how do you compensate for that when it's you playing all of these characters? Um, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't miss it. It's, it's because usually it means I'm away from my family in a hotel room somewhere. Um, when I've come to not enjoy being alone in hotel rooms and, um, um, you know, writing the novel means that I, I, it, that's me. I'm acting every character that's I'm, I'm, while trying to make it not sound like like me in every piece of dialogue. So um, so I haven't missed it yet, let's put it that way. I'd love to do it again, but I haven't missed it yet. I'd love to do it again with the actors who are playing the characters in the book, in this book that I will hopefully have adapted for a movie or a TV series. That would be fun to go down that journey with the actors, see, see where that leads us. Um, so that would be fun and very satisfying. I assume that having worked so closely with, with some of the greatest actors that have ever lived, um, you've picked up some, some tips and tricks about how to create uh, characters and how to refine dialogue along the way, yeah? Yes. I hope so. I hope so. I try not to think too much when I'm writing. You know, I, I mean, I, I try to not paralyze myself with, with conscious thought or at least technical thought on this stuff. But yes, I, I, I hope I have. Um, I was once, I did a lot of work on, and a lot of work on the set of the Book of Eli. Um, um, and um, Gary Oldman plays the bad guy in, in the movie. And um, he phoned me, he just phones me one day and goes, Tony, um, do I shave? Because it's post-apocalyptic, right? But he's the boss of, of the bad gang. And I say, hmm, I had never thought of it. And you go, yes, but you're the only person in this entire movie who shaves. No one else has a razor or soap or anything. You're the only person who can shave. So yes, you shave. And he's like, ah, oh, thank you. I thought so. Yes. And uh, that's that. You know, he, he, he was the one who, who brought that question to the character. But it's quite important on screen, right? It's quite important to know that he's the wealthiest person in that world where there is no wealth anymore. 
Um, so that was. Now I'm incredibly jealous. I've always uh, joked that they could save a lot of money making Jurassic Park movies if they just cast Gary Oldman to play all the dinosaurs. At first you go, I don't know if he's, but he would do it. He'd pull it off. He's, he, he so disappears into real life. I think that's a T-Rex. It's not Gary Oldman anymore. <laughs> and he'd be a, a bloody scary dinosaur too. <laughs> Far more scary than a CGI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's amazing. Um Tony, I'm watching our time and it's it's flown by. Um, you, you, you've been very generous and I've, I've, I've so enjoyed our conversation. I've got two more questions for you and we'll think about landing this thing. Uh, okay. Yep. yep uh, the same yep. audience knows I have to ask, and you mentioned you have an interest in, uh, in, in, in flying saucers and aliens. And I ask everybody who comes on the show, uh, Tony Peckham, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? I have felt a ghost. Go on. Um, or a spirit. Um, I I don't want to get too deeply in because it's personal and somewhat painful. But um, a person close to me who had recently died came to me and um, spoke to me and from the other side. And um, so, yes, I do believe in. If that's a ghost, then I do believe in that. I, I, I think that in Celtic mythology, it's called the thin place, right? It's just there. It's just there. And I do believe that in that. Um, so, yes. Um, and I don't know if there was another part of the question. Oh, just have you ever seen a flying saucer? What do you feel now that we're, we're shooting down unidentified flying objects all over the place? Um, where do you think we're at with this whole, how close are we to, to, to getting to know what the, what the secret is behind these things? I don't think we're close at all, but I had no enough people who I trust in all other aspects of their life, not crazy, functional, um, uh, you know, un functional, honest people who have seen flying sources. We have seen objects that behave aerodynamically in a way that nothing we make can. And so again, there's something there. It's absurd to think that we're all there is. I mean, I always go back to that. I, where, where I live, I lie on my driveway when it's a clear night because where I live is very dark and you can see deep into the Milky Way, and it really is milky. If it's dark enough, it's a stripe, a milky stripe in the sky. And to think that we're all there is in all of that is, is, doesn't make sense to me. So, so What's the line from contact? It seems like an awful waste of space. Yeah, exactly. Contact's a great film. Um, all right, and you said you had other questions. I did. I like to end uh, on this question, and that is, if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been most useful to you, and give yourself some advice that would have made a crucial difference for you, made easier your path, and might make easier the path of everybody who's watching or listening to us, what would you go back and tell yourself? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's a list, but the top of the list 
<laughs> I would have been much more successful if I knew these things. Um, the top of the list, and really writing this book brought this to me in a very visceral way, is write for yourself. Write to please yourself. Do stuff that you think is good. Not, don't write for anyone else. Um, if, you, if you make yourself happy, chances are you're going to make, or entertain yourself or frighten yourself, um, the chances are you're going to do the same for others. Um, be confident enough in what you do to write for yourself. That's please yourself. Um, I, wish I'd, I wish I'd been able to do that much earlier in my career rather than pleasing a producer or a director or a studio executive to have the confidence to please myself and know that they would, that, that, that would generally please others. So that's the advice I have for myself and everyone else. Entertain yourself. When did you learn that lesson and how did you learn it? Follow-up question. Um, just in the movie business, getting pissed off and enough at Ooh, I probably can't use that word. Getting upset enough at continually being corrected um, by people who didn't read, didn't write, didn't necessarily deserve the jobs they had. Um, but I still sort of uh, um, neurotically listened to them. And at a certain point, I went, why am I listening to these people? I know better. I'm the writer. I know better. I know how these things work. I know my craft. And so at a certain point in, in my screenwriting career, that happened and the difference was immediate. And then writing this book, I really wrote it for myself. And I enjoyed every moment of it. And so hopefully others do too. And I have to repeat that trick with the second one, is write it just for myself, even though now there's, there are other people waiting for it. Um, so write for yourself. And that's why it's so truly excellent. Children of the Black Class is available now. Uh, Tony, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Um, nowhere. I, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, um, at Simon and & Schuster and in, in, in the Google, Google sphere, I guess I'm there. Apparently I am, and I, um, but no, I, I, um, I have enough trouble managing myself in the world I'm in, the little old world I'm in of pens and pencils and computers and stuff. So I, I don't have time. And you know, I have a family and a child to raise and I just don't have time to sit on a screen and have a screen presence like that, a social media presence. So I'm sorry to say the book is, the book is where you'll find me. So when people fall in love with the story, they can post a review on all the usual sites. They can send a letter care of Simon and Schuster to let you yes. know how much they enjoyed it. Yes, yes, please. I love letters. Letters are, I, I'm, I'm sorry, letters are gone, pretty much. Because writing a letter is a real, an act, right? That you have to do. So um, yes, you can. Care of Simon and Schuster, Athenaeum Publishing is the branch within Simon & Schuster.
It's all there in the front frontispiece. So. As always, esteemed audience, for more interviews almost as good as this one, head to middlegradeninja.com. Get your copy of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. You're going to love it. For God's sake, get your copy of Children of the Black Glass. Get both. What a weekend you're going to have ahead of you. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.